From the start, Toni Morrison was exceptional. She remembers being the only black child in the first grade and the only one who could read. The early reader became a celebrated writer, called one of the greatest authors in American history. The Bluest Eye, Shula, Song of Solomon are considered classics, illuminating the black experience in America. We not only survived, we produced something so valuable, so irreplaceable, and that's what's worth celebrating. Born Chloe Wofford in 1931 in Ohio, she studied English at Howard University where she picked up the nickname Tony. As one of the few black editors at Random House, Morrison published books by Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali. A divorced single mother, she wrote her own first novel in 1973 after work when her two sons were in bed. Fourteen years later, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Beloved. It was made into a movie. The story of a black woman who kills her own child to save her from a life of slavery. Then love ain't no love at all. Poet Maya Angelou said Morrison didn't write English, she composed it. Composition so extraordinary, in 1993, she became the first African American awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Oprah's book club made Morrison a household name whose works challenged readers. It's not fast food. It's a, it's a meal that you should relish. In 2012, acknowledged with the nation's highest civilian award. Toni Morrison's prose brings us that kind of moral and emotional intensity that few writers ever attempt. She devoted her life to teaching and inspiring others to write. I could never be happy if I thought there was going to be another void, another huge historical silence about the experience of black people. Toni Morrison, a descendant of sharecroppers who changed the face of American literature. Rahima Ellis, NBC News. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to <laughs> Uh, good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks. And this this uh, day we are going to be honoring uh, Toni Morrison. We are so excited uh, to have um, as our first guest uh, my dear friend um, Kim McMillan and, um, and another scholar um, whom I think I might have met you, um, uh, Ms. Joyce, uh, in... Uh, I guess in in New Orleans, where you were you at the conference? I believe you presented there as well. Yes. Good morning. I was there. Yes. Oh, uh, good morning. Kim hasn't joined us yet, um, but um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, definitely. You know, uh, a tree has fallen in our collective forest. That's for sure. And um, that is true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And a light. Has has joined the celestial hemisphere, right? Um, oh my goodness! That is so um, true. Yeah. Ah, there's Kim. Good morning, Kim. How are you? Oh, great, great. Uh, sorry, I'm a little late. I was trying to figure out how to upload a video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm sure um, it will all work out the way it's supposed to work out. Um, so I'm gonna um. I'm going to introduce um, you first, Kim, and then I was wondering, could you possibly do us the honor of introducing uh, Dr. Joyce? Would that oh, be okay? Oh, of course I would. 
Okay. Dr. Joyce is wonderful. Yeah. So I'm going to start with you, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) So Kim McMillan is a good friend of mine, and she can do no wrong. So let me just get that out. In the beginning, she is like such a powerful woman and such a creative creative person and a person that is, has made it possible for um, the community to experience so much uh, literary excellence, particularly when she was living um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. But, you know, when she, um, you know, moved to, um, um, to um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the, uh, uh, Merced. Merced uh, yeah, Merced, um, you know, we, we lost a giant, but um, but you might say it's not that far. <laughs> so, so Kim, you know, still, you know, we've still been able to share in her wonderful work, uh, particularly around, you know, the Black Arts Movement and her scholarship and documenting that. And, you know, good luck this weekend in defending your dissertation, um, if that's the correct language for that. Oh, oh, thank you. That is very kind of you to say, Wanda. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to read your bio now, um, but go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say Wanda was the person that would drag me to theater plays because she was a, um, she, she was a reviewer, a, a critic, a theater critic, and we would just have the most marvelous time seeing the wonderful plays, particularly um, African-American plays um, through the Lorraine Hansberry Egypt Theater, just wonderful work. So that I'm was just honored to know you, Wanda. <laughs> yeah, we are Gemini sisters. We have celebrated birthdays together, and yeah, yeah we are like joined. <laughs> um, different mothers, but definitely, you know, um, definitely uh, connected. Um, so Kim McMillan. Uh, will officially earn her doctorate in interdisciplinary humanities this summer at the University of California, Merced. Ms. McMillan produced the Dillard University Harvard Hutchins Center Black Arts Movement Conference in September 2016. In collaboration with UC Merced's Office of Student Life and Center for the Humanities, Ms. McMillan produced the UC Merced Black Arts Movement Conference 50 Years On, February 28 to March 2, 2014. Ms. McMillan edited the April 2018 special edition of the Journal of Pan-African Studies on the Black Arts Movement and has contributed to the Black Power Encyclopedia, 1965 to 1975, a two-volume reference work that explores the emergence and evolution of the Black Power Movement in the United States. From 2001 to 2005, Ms. McMillan produced the Oakland Literature Expo with Penn Oakland as part of the City of Oakland's Art and Soul Festival, which continues to this day. Ms. McMillan's radio show, Arts in the Valley, 2010 to 2014, aired every Saturday on 1480 KYOS AM in Merced, California. So once again, thank you so much, Kim, for joining us. And, yeah, thanks so much for, um, you know, introducing um, my audience to um, Dr. Joyce A. Joyce. Oh, uh, my pleasure. Um, Dr. Joyce, and I love it because we can also just call you Joyce, um, is... (laughs) (laughs) 
She's magnificent. She's a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. And she's also a Sonia Sanchez scholar. And she's a chairman of the Department of English. Well, she was from 2012 to 2015 at Temple University and a 1995 recipient of the American Book Award for Literary Criticism for the collection of essays, Warriors, Conjurers, and Priests, Defining African-American Literary Criticism. She earned her PhD in English from the University of Georgia in 1979. She taught for 10 years at the University of Maryland, College Park, three years at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and five years at Chicago State University, where she was Associate Director of the Gwendolyn Brooks Center, Coordinator of the Honors Program, and Chairperson of the Black Studies Department. She was also Chairperson of the Department of African American Studies at Temple University from 1997 to 2001. In 2008, she gave one of the two keynote presentations at the American Embassy in Paris at the International Centennial Celebration of Richard Wright's birthday and a keynote presentation at Richard Wright's 100 and an international conference held at the Universidade de Pera Interia in Covija, Portugal. I'm sure I pronounced it incorrectly. In June 2017, she delivered a presentation at the Colloquium for African American Research at Malaga University in Malaga, Spain. She has published articles on Richard Wright, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Gwendolyn Brooks, Nila Larson, Zora Neale Hurston, Arthur Davis, Tony Cade Bambara, Ishmael Reed, E. Ethelbert Miller, Askia Torre, Gil Scott Heron, and Sonia Sanchez. Her current project is titled Black Literary Essays, The Kaleidoscope of Imagination, oh, excuse me, The Kaleidoscope Imagination. Her papers are housed in special collections at the Odom Library and Valdosta State University. Hi, hi, Joyce, how are you doing? Hello, Kim, good morning. Good morning. I'm doing I well. well. I apologize for messing up any of the uh, pronunciations because you're you're such a brilliant scholar, and I wanted to let um, our audience and and Wanda know that I had heard Askia Torre, one of the founders of the Black Arts Movement, just talk on and on. He says, "Kim, you got to meet Joyce. She's so wonderful. She's so beautiful. She's so brilliant." And so by the time I met her, go ahead, go ahead. No, you go on. Well, by the time I met you at our um, Black Arts Movement conference at Dillard University in 2016, I felt like you were a sister because he had talked about you so much. And so, of course, I wanted to hug you. And you're like, like, oh, my God, I have this terrible cold, Kim. And I was, I don't care. I got it. I was just tickled (laughs) to get the chance to hug someone that a skia spoke so so highly of, and and such a brilliant scholar. I'm I'm just tickled just to even know you. Well, thank you. That's my introduction. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) Eskia is one of my my literary fathers and definitely one of my mentors. I really love Eskia, and he is one brilliant artist. Yes, Brilliant. So you, Brilliant. yes, he is. So you wanted me to talk about Toni Morrison? Yes, uh, please. Mm-hmm. 
both of you, um, actually. Do you have a question, yes. or did you want me to do something else? Um, or do you want me to start, or do you have a question? Well, basically, I'm just uh, interested in, um, you know, your 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 scholarship, um, and also uh, just sort of the impact of of her work on on your um, scholarship. You know, as a um, you know black woman, um, you know, in higher education, and and also okay. you know with an expertise in literature. Um, and then Kim, I want you to talk about your um, your work, particularly. Um, the um the tribute program that you put on um you know oh, around sure. the uh the anniversary of um would you say the 25th anniversary of beloved no the 30th anniversary um of of Toni Morrison's beloved right 30th anniversary uh, right mm-hmm. well, so i would love to i'd be honored i'm honestly i want to say to you um Wanda i am so thrilled that you put this together this is so important thank you Oh, you're welcome. So let's get started. <laughs> so I was waiting for so directions. Shall I go first? Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go ahead and go first if you like. It doesn't matter to me. Um so Kim, um what would you like? Would you like to go first? I, I would think, like to I was thinking I was thinking Joyce, the reason why is because she sets the stage with her scholarship and her and a mm-hmm. very strong knowledge. So that people will have okay. an understanding of the importance of Toni Morrison's work. Okay, sounds good. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, um, hearing of um, Toni, Miss Morrison's having made transition, my mind, for some reason, the essay that she wrote, uh, which is collected in... Um, Mari Evans' edition of Black Women Writers, 1950 to 1980, a critical evaluation. And Ms. Morrison has an essay in here titled Rootedness, the Ancestor as Foundation. And it is, I have to admit, it's my friend Omio Shun, who um, is a performance critic and artist, who directed me a number of years ago to this essay. So now when I teach Toni Morrison and other writers whom I see in her tradition, uh, I always start with this, with, this, with this essay. And I think it's very important today to put Morrison in a tradition that she describes herself for herself in this essay. And she says, I'm going to read what she says. And she says, um, she says, I have touched about, I've talked about function in that other question, and I touched a little bit on some of the other characteristics of African-American writing, one of which was oral quality and the participation of the reader and the chorus. The only thing that I would add for this question is the presence of an ancestor, it seems to me interesting to evaluate black literature on on what the writer does with the presence of an ancestor, which is to say a grandfather, as in Ralph Ellison, or a grandmother, as in Tony K. Bambara, or a healer, as in, <clears throat> excuse me, as in Bambara or Henry or Henry Dumas. 
And she goes on to say just a little bit more. It was um, so I want to put her, <clears throat> excuse me, in that put her in that tradition that I see Morrison as the frequently referred to her as the mother of African American uh, literature, at, just as we speak frequently of Richard Wright as the father of African African American literature, and. With her passing, I realized also that I, I always, I never thought of Morrison in terms of age, and I realized that I always thought that she would, that she would be, that she would be around. And I understand that in response to that, some people say, well, especially in the sense of an ancestor, that yes, yeah, she's always, she's always, always around. But it's somewhat, um, I guess the word might be provocative, that when a writer makes transition, that writer enters our hearts, not on another level, if I'm making sense when I, when I say that. And it, she, in this same essay, she says something else, which I think is very, very important, and important, okay, important because there are probably as many dissertations, if not more, written on Toni Morrison as there are dissertations on Richard Wright. And these are dissertations written by uh, scholars and uh, by grad students all over the world, not just in the, not just in the United States. But what is important for me also is that Morrison always kept African-American people centered in her, in her work. We were always, we were the, the we suffered, we healed, um, and we were always centered there. And here's what she says that reminds me of that. She's, in the same essay, she says, the autobiographical form is classic in black American or Afro-American literature because it provided an instance in which a writer could be representative, could say, the writer could say, and she quotes, my single, solitary, and individual life is like the lives of the tribe. It differs in these specific ways, but it is a balanced life because it is both solitary and representative. So even though Morrison was a very, very private person, on many levels we knew her work, but we knew very little about her. But her but but she also, as she says here, sees herself as a writer who is representative of the tribe. And she really, uh, I guess I'll end that comment by saying she really loved us. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. I yeah, love what really you said, wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful. And especially she really loved us. Because I met yes, her did. once. I had the honor. And the biggest thing I remember of her was... I handed her some flowers. Ishmael Reed asked, had me give her some flowers, and 
she grabbed me and just gave me the biggest hug. It was like this soul hug, and and it was like such warmth. And I, you know, you you think when people become so famous, they lose a little bit of themselves. But she had such warmth, and that was the biggest thing I noticed. I was so amazed at the generosity of spirit. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say, it was what you said about. Uh, rootedness in the ancestors it, it it's so important the reason why i see it as important is that in my um dissertation um hidden voices the women of the black arts movement and the rise of the ancestors um i use i use a quote from that um f- from that essay um <clears throat> rootedness as foundation and uh, to speak on uh, Tony Morrison's belief that we have, um, as, as a people, we have knowledge, um, but it's not always seen. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was so important, particularly when we look at the history of African Americans, you know, the rootedness, the, the coming to the United States as slaves. Right. And and right. and rooted to a land that was not ours, and yet right. we take it and we make it ours. Mm-hmm. W- what did we do in the United States? We built the United States as mm-hmm. slaves, mm-hmm. and so there's so much in our culture that is about that rootedness. And what I what she says in that essay that I love was the way in which black people looked at the world. We are a very practical people, very down to earth, mm-hmm. even shrewd people. Mm-hmm. However, within mm-hmm. that practicality, we also accepted what I suppose could be called superstition and magic, which is another mm-hmm. way of knowing things. And some of those mm-hmm. things were discredited knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so important. The way that we be, we've come to the United States as slaves. Our knowledge, what did we bring? We brought mm-hmm. knowledge from so many different parts of the African continent. Mm-hmm. And, and of mm-hmm. so much of it was discredited. The roots, mm-hmm. the very the mm-hmm. people, almost every black person has some relative in their lineage that work with roots. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so to speak of, and who understood ancestors and valued mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's so important. I, I was going to want ask, can I read this quote? Because I thought it was so important to who Toni Morrison is. Or I'm going to say is because I still see her as a, she's here. She's alive yeah. in mm-hmm. her own way. The mm-hmm. quote, she says, I never asked Tolstoy to write for me, a little colored girl in Lorraine, Ohio. I never asked James Joyce not to mention Catholicism or the world of Dublin, never. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I should be asked to explain your life to you. We have (laughs) splendid writers to do that, but I am not one of them. It is that business of being universal, a word hopelessly stripped of meaning for me. Faulkner Mm -hmm. wrote what I suppose could be called regional literature and had it published all over the world. That's what I wish to do. If Mm. I tried to write a universal novel, 
it would be water. Behind this mm-hmm. question is a suggestion that to write for black people is to somehow to diminish the writing. From my perspective, mm-hmm. there are only black people. What I say, when I say people, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that explains so much. She, she was a universal writer, but she, she wrote. Was. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm just so anxious to say how honest she is. Yes. She never, yes. She never sacrificed what she really thought for notoriety. Yes. And that is very, very, very important to me. Kim, Did are you, you familiar with uh, Lavinia Dolores Jennings, Toni Morrison, and the idea of Africa? No, I'm not. I, it I, is, now I have to look that up. It's a phenomenal book that very much relates to what you were talking about, about I call it the, pre, the, the spirituality in her text, the presence of of yes. what people call ghosts, but the presence of yes. uh, what I call another dimension of reality. And yes. it is a text that traces, uh, that explores Tony Mar the influence, the presence of African spirituality through oh what some God. people call Boudin or Santeria in a number of Tony Morrison's novels. Oh, wow. I want that. I want to read that immediately. That, and it relates to what so you're wonderful. saying because I, it relates to what you're saying because I know of a scholar, teacher, who does not, you know, does not like this text. He doesn't like to. He's written on Toni Morrison, but he doesn't like to talk about her works by referencing referencing Africa in in any way. He's very much in denial of that presence of the really the importance of the ancestor what the ancestor really means uh-huh. when we talk about people like pilot so um oh, characters, I, I guess that. I should say like pilot so I think that that makes the work that you you're doing very very important and it also also illuminates again Tony Morrison's really interestingly I, I realize in talking to you her honesty, but also her humility, because she didn't, how do I say, it seems condescending to say brag about, she didn't in some ways announce what she was doing. She wrote, and you could just see the consistencies in in her work, and it tells you a lot about how she felt about literature. She was brilliant, and I want to just read this quote from A Mercy, because it yes. was one of her Not one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's one of my, this is my favorite quote just about any of her work. It goes, that's near the end. Neither one will want your brother. I know their tastes. Breasts provide the pleasure more than simpler things. Yours are rising too soon and are becoming irritated by the cloth covering your little girl's chest. And they see, and I see them see. There was no protection, none. I don't Mm. know who your father is. It was too dark to see any of them. They came at night and took we three, including Beth, to a curing shed. Shadows of men sat on barrels and stood. They said we were told to break we in 
there is no protection. To be female in this place is to be an open wound that cannot heal. Even if scars form, the festering is ever below. One chance, I thought. There's no protection, but there is a difference. There stood there in those shoes. You stood there in those shoes, and the tall man laughed and said he would take me to close the debt. I knew, senor, would not allow it. I said, you, take you, my daughter, because I saw the tall man see you as a human child, not pieces of eight. I -hmm. knelt before him, hoping for a miracle. He said, yes, it was not a miracle. Bestowed Mm -hmm. by God, it was a mercy offered by Mm -hmm. humans. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Me too. Me too. It's a big Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I didn't want to speak too I, much. You go on. You go. That's my one. That's my at the moment. That might be my favorite novel, and I don't often have a chance to have a discussion with a scholar um, about that. About that novel being my, you know, being my favorite of hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to invite uh, Devorah Major uh, into the conversation. Good morning, Devorah. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know Kim McMillan, and I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Joyce A. Joyce, um, but but you might have met her at the conferences, um, perhaps. Yeah, I don't remember that. Hi, I hi, Devorah. Hi, great to hear your voice. Your voice says. You, you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Devora Major um, is a California-born granddaughter of immigrants, documented and undocumented, who works as a writer, editor, writing coach, spoken word performer, recording artist, and poetry professor. Uh, she lives as a wife, mother, grandmother, aunt, niece, cousin, and friend to many who honor her with their friendship in return. And I'm reading from her bio on her website, DevoraMajor.com. Uh, she also writes that she is a San Francisco's third uh, poet laureate, an award-winning poet and fiction writer, creative nonfiction writer, performer, editor, and part-time senior adjunct professor at California College of the Arts, as well as a poet-in-residence of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. And she has toured internationally, um, just getting back from Italy, uh, she told me the other day. <laughs> um, uh, northern, uh, Southern Italy, I believe, this time. And she's also been to Bosnia, Jamaica, Venezuela, Belgium, England, and Wales, and throughout the United States, both performing her poetry and serving on panels, speaking on African-American poetry, beat poetry, and poetry of resistance. She has two novels and four books of poetry published. Her first novel, An Open Weave, was awarded the first novelist award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association and was released by Seal Press and later sold to Women's Press in London and resold as a trade paperback to Signature Press, Curbstone Press. Uh, Released her second novel, which includes poetry, Brown Glass Windows, to critical acclaim, Uh, City Lights Publishing released another book of her poetry, and then we became in 2016 and Where River Meets Ocean in 2006. Uh, Creative Arts Books, Inc. released her third solo book of poetry with uh, with More Than Tongue. 
and she is the recipient of a 2002 California Arts Council Spoken Word Literary Arts Fellowship. And uh, for over 20 years, uh, that's I think, I'm not sure, I think I might have, I don't know where I met you, Devore. I think I met you at one of the um, International Black Writers and Artists meetings over at the African American Art and Culture Complex uh, Fulton way back when. But I do remember uh, you uh, as a part of the duo Daughters of Yam, <laughs> a poetry performance group with Opal Palmer Disa, which has released one book, two chapbooks, one poetry and jazz cassette, and one poetry and jazz CD. And I also remember you as editor of um, Conceptualizations, um, uh, Ethel Matthews' um, uh, publication from um, a concept cultural concept gallery, culture a really gallery. beautiful or, organ, or, organization that put on so many wonderful concerts. I love the duet series. <laughs> and <laughs> and I just want to pour an shade to Edsel's memory and his work because he's such a wonderful person. And so with all that, tell us about Tony Morrison. <laughs> Well, I didn't. I didn't hear all of the conversation. I was hearing the end of it, and I think it, I'm really happy, especially to hear the stuff about the Africanists. You know, because I feel like that's Toni Morrison. She uh, she trusts the reader, and uh, she puts it there for you to find if you want to go on that journey. And I really appreciate that. Um, I, ha- I, you know, I saw. Toni Morrison speak, the first time I saw her speak was actually at Stanford University, and she was reading from the not yet published Beloved, and I was really taken by it because she was reading the part when um, she's taking the little bugs out of the flower, and, uh, you know, uh, and she she uh, was taken with the emotion of it and cried a bit, and it was just really... Uh, because I so often when I'm doing my work, I may find myself crying. If it's really hard, I was like, wow, it was really, she just, she's always herself, was always herself. But then they opened it to questions, and somebody in the audience said it was the best question, I mean, not the best question, but the best answer. Where do you get your, your characters? And she just paused and looked at the young man and said, I make them up. Oh. Wow. <laughs> just, it's like, you know, that's <laughs> something real. You know? I'm a writer. Where do you think I get my characters? You know, that, that uh, I really, really love that. So I wanted to say that I found a book. Um, my name is Devore, and I'm a bookaholic. So if I walk by a bookstore, I have to go in pretty much unless I just don't have a time. And I found a book remainder that I had not known about. Um, the beginning of last year called Burn This Book, Notes on Literature and Engagement. Not that it was mm-hmm. a new book, but just that I, that's when I found it. And it's essays on um, the role of the writer and why we should write and what we should remember and like that. And she has this very short essay, she edited the book, called Peril. And I thought it was just such a wonderful statement of where writers should consider situating themselves and what she thinks about herself as a writer and the role of writing in um, our society today. And she does consider the world. She is, you know, what I love Toni Morrison because she writes about the African-American 
experience and more specifically Southern and Ohio experience. And yet it, she does it in a way that it is absolutely universal, but uh, showing the universe from home, you know, much as one can stand on a mountain and look at the universe through a telescope, you know. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so can I share some of this? Oh, uh, it's called it's called peril. Authoritarian regimes, dictators, despots are often but not always fools. But none is foolish enough to give perceptive dissident writers free range to publish their judgments or follow their creative instincts. They know they do so at their own peril. They are not stupid enough to abandon control, overt or insidious, over media. Their methods include surveillance, censorship, arrest, even slaughter of those writers informing and disturbing the public. Writers who are unsettling, calling into question, Talking another, taking another deeper look. Writers, journalists, essayists, bloggers, poets, playwrights can disturb the social oppression that functions like a coma on the population, a coma despots call peace. And they stanch the blood flow of war hawks and profiters that thrill to. That is their peril. Ours is of another salt. How bleak unlivable, insufferable existence becomes when we are deprived of artwork. That the life and work of writers facing peril must be protected is urgent, but along with that urgency we should remind ourselves that their absence, the choking off of a writer's work, its cruel amputation, is of equal peril to us. The rescue we extend to them is a generosity to ourselves. We all know nations that can be identified by the flight of writers from their shores. They're, these are regimes whose fear of unmonitored writing is justified because truth is trouble. It is trouble for the warmonger, the torturer, the corporate thief, the political hack, the corrupt justice system, and for a comatose public. Unpersecuted, unjailed, unharassed writers are trouble for the ignorant bully, the sly racist, and the predators feeding off the world's resources. The alarm that disquiet writers raise is instructive because it's open and vulnerable, because if unpoliced, it is threatening. Therefore, the historical suppression of writers is the earliest harbing of the peeling away of additional rights and liberties that will follow. The history of persecuted writers is as long as the history of literature itself, and the efforts to censor, starve, regulate, and annihilate us are clear signs that something important has taken place. Cultural and political forces can sweep clean all but the safe, all but state-approved art. I have been told that there are two human responses to the perception of chaos, naming and violence. When chaos is simply the unknown, the naming can be accomplished effortlessly. A new species, star, formula, equation, prognosis. There is also mapping, charting, or devising proper nouns for unnamed or stripped of names, geography, landscape, or population. When chaos resists, either by reforming itself or rebelling against the Opposed order. Violence has understood to be the most frequent response and the most rational when confronting mm -hmm. the unknown, the catastrophic, the wild, wanton, or incorrigible. Rational responses may be censor, incarceration, and holding camps, prison, or death, singly or in a war. 
There is, however, a third response to chaos, which I have not heard about, which is stillness. Such stillness can be passivity and dumbfoundedness. It can be paralytic fill, fear, but it can also be art. Those writers plying their craft near to or far from the throne throne of raw power, of military power, of empire building and counting houses. Writers who construct meaning in the face of chaos must be nurtured, protected. And it is right that such protection be initiated by other writers. And it is imperative not only to save the besieged writers, but to save ourselves. The thought that leads me to contemplate with dread the erasure of other voices, the unwritten novels, poems whispered or swallowed for fear of being overheard by the wrong people, outlawed languages flourishing underground, essayist questions challenging authority, never being posed, unstaged poems, canceled film. That thought is a nightmare, as though a whole universe is being described in invisible ink. Certain, certain, this is for me the most important thing in this whole essay, this last paragraph. Certain kinds of trauma visited on people are so cruel, so deep, that unlike money, unlike vengeance, even unlike justice or rights or the goodwill of others, only writers can translate such trauma and turn such sorrow into meaning, sharpening the moral imagination. A writer's life and work are not a gift to mankind. They are its necessity. Oh, beautiful. Oh, wow. I want to thank you for that, and I want to yes. interrupt or intervene or whatever it is. Could you please give me the title of that book and also, please? Yes, it, Toni Morrison is the editor, and she wrote the essay. And okay. that's why I wanted to share it, because we all, well, we, we, people know Toni Morrison mostly through her novels. Right, but she did write some just really constructive essays that she just was so profound. And the book is called "Burn This Book." It's a pen uh, publication, I believe. Harper is the publisher, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. "Burn This Book: uh, Notes uh. on Literature and Engagement," edited by Toni Morrison, and then the first essay is hers, "Peril." That is remarkable. Thank you so much. I'm going to immediately begin to share that with my students. Yeah, I, could I, you I, give us? Oh, hmm? I was going to ask um, uh, Joyce. Could you give us the the name of the the piece that you mentioned? That because I also think that was important. Um, yes, it's uh, the lady's in, name. Yeah, okay, it's in Mari Evans's Black Women Writers, 1950 yes. to 1980, A Critical Evaluation. Black Women Writers, 1950 to 1980s, A Critical Evaluation, edited okay. by Mari Evans. Mm. And it's uh, Morrison's <laughs> essay in here, and um, Rootedness, colon, The Ancestor as Foundation. Oh, Tony I'm Morrison. talking about the other piece. You said, "Do you do I know of the this woman?" She, oh, her name oh, with the, the idea of Africa. Oh, certainly. Right, right, Kim. I'm sorry. Yes, That's it's right. here. I'm almost up the stairs here. Okay, it's um, I'm going to spell her name for you because her name is odd. Lavinia L A, 
one word and then the next, V-I-N-I-A, Dolores, D-E-L-O-I-S, Jennings, mm-hmm. J-E-N-N-I-N-G-S, Tony Morrison, and the idea of Africa. Idea. Mm-hmm. This sounds so good. Yeah, um, we, making me want. I think we have oh. a. Sorry, I think we have um, a guest joining us um, to share. Let me let me see um, who this person might be. Can I thank Miss Major uh, for? Um, it's wonderful being introduced to you, even by phone. Thank you very much for that essay from Tony. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for your words earlier. Yeah, because these are all important things. While I hear all of Toni Morrison lauded it, the, 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 the Africanness of her writing is so critical to understand. Yeah. It's one, one thread, you know, we're not broken off the way it's always said, you know. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, and, and uh, she's just such a critical part of that uh, reiteration and translation in terms of our survival here, but, you know, still yeah. reaching all the way back, you know. Yeah, yeah um, well, I yes, look forward just to joined us. you. Uh, I just wanted to see um, if you joined us to share something about Toni Morrison. Hi, Wanda. Hello? This is Ayodele and Zinga. Oh, oh, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Yes. Oh, great, great. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Yeah, Adele, uh, Ayodele Nzinga is um, uh, artistic director and founder of the Lower Bottom Players, one of our Bay Area premier companies. Um, yeah, go ahead. Talk. Share. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ran into an article that said, don't call Toni Morrison a poet. And she is quoted as saying that she really wanted her language not to be reduced to prose because she wanted to convey very, very important ideas. And she said for her prose to be considered poetic, she considered to be a a luxurious richness. So I have Bought some poems by Toni Morrison. Oh, wonderful. Yes. There are five short pieces that make up a collection that was published. And so here we go. Eve Remembering. One. I tore from a limb fruit that had lost its green. My hands were warmed by the heat of an apple fire red and humming. I bid sweet power to the core. How can I say what it was like, the taste? The taste undid my eyes and led me far from the gardens planted for a child to wilderness deeper than any master's call. Two. Now the these Cool hands guide what they once caressed. Lips forget what they have kissed. My eyes now pool their light. Better the summit to see. Three. I would do it all over again. Be the harbor 
and set the sail. Lose the breeze and harness the gale. Cherish the harvest of what I have been. Better the summit to scale. Better the summit to be. The perfect ease of grain. The perfect ease of grain. Time enough to spill. The flavor of a woman carried through the rain. Honey talk tongues down home dreams. A rust by shapely prayers. Evening lips part to hush questions raised at dawn. The melon yields another flight. Fingers understand. Ecstasy becomes us all. Red cherries become jam. The juvenile sleep. A whistle trace, white shorelines in green air. Welcome doors held open. And goodbye is so long. The perfect poise of grain. Time enough to spill. The flavor of a woman remembered on a train. Someone leans near. Someone leans near and sees the salt your eyes have shed. You wait, longing to hear words of reason, love, or play, to lash or low you forward the hollow day. Silence needs your fears, a crumbled star ash sifting down, clouding the room, here, here. You shore up your heart to run, to stay. But no sign or design marks the narrow way. Then, on a skin, a breath caresses the salt your eyes have shed. And you remember a call so clear, so clear, you will never die again. Once more, you know you will never die again. And there are a couple more. Any any comments? Um, in the meantime, I'm just amazed. I just I didn't share poetry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were there. Oh. Yeah, I I just think it's just that's how uh, she's always been able to say so much with yeah. such a um, I don't know efficiency of of text and her poetry. It's lovely. I actually didn't know her poetry. I'm so glad. Uh, Thanks for, Thanks for sharing. Sharing it, yeah, it's wonderful. And I think I'm it's confused. important to say. I have a oh, question. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'm confused. I have a, at the beginning, 
did the uh, lady who read the poetry, did she, I'm confused, was she oh, indicating that Mark, yeah, was she indicating that Marson doesn't see her prose as poetry, or did I just misunderstand? And the only reason I uh-huh. ask is that particularly, Kim, with a mercy, with a mercy mm-hmm. there is so much that is much very characteristic of poetry, but I don't think that's what Ayudeli said. I think I just misunderstood. Yeah, and Ayudeli's, um, her she hopefully she'll call back in. Um, I see. She's not in the studio anymore, right at the moment. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I didn't. I mean, I, yeah. I, that's. Oh I, no, wait a I second. I was not. Okay. Ayo, are you still with us? No. Okay. Yeah, hopefully she'll call back in. But go ahead, um, Devorah, you, you were saying? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I was just kind of appalled at the idea that someone would see her work as anything other than uh, poetical, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Certainly yeah, there is there's a, there, there is a, a, a gradation between the story and the poem, but uh, particularly her, yeah, Anna Mercy, what an incredible mm-hmm. book. Oh, you know, really mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it is, and, 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 and you know we don't, mm-hmm. and, you know, and we don't. Someone was, was that you, Kim? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was. That was Devore, and I didn't want. I apologize for interrupting. I, I was no, just going to say the language, like when we read the love it, you, you get caught in the language when she describes on the back. When that was like a tree. What was it? Chokeberry tree? The yes. language yep. it just grips you. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it, I like the it, reader aloud. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. just like one would read a poem to understand it best, you read it aloud and I find that with Tony yes. Morrison too. Me you too. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, you know. And people are always telling me that beloved is her most difficult for- book. Oh, oh! You have to leave. I have a twelve thirty appointment, so I have to uh, sign off. But I didn't just want to hang up without saying how grateful I am to <laughs> have an opportunity to participate in this conversation, and I look forward to many more. It is totally inspiring. Oh, yes, excellent! Is. Yeah, yeah, we we'll definitely thank love you, to continue Wanda. this conversation. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a really great rest of the day. And, yes, definitely we thank want to continue you. this conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye. Bye. And I have to leave at 930. Um, but I just okay. want to say, Wanda, this is like a treat. This is like a joy to talk about someone who changed even how we are seen as black woman, women. Mm-hmm. The writing, it, she, what Toni Morrison was able to do with her writing was actually communicate the depth, the experiences, the feelings of black women. And, and that therefore became universal language and universal literature. When she wrote about loving and the different ways that black women loved in her novels, Every single one of them I understood, I felt. Uh, the, the one, especially of Mercy, 
when I can't remember the young girl's name, when she was so in love with the black man that she just longed for him. You understood in the writing that longing. It, yeah. She's able to convey, convey feeling. Her words actually become more than just words. Yeah, and the the the, the, com, the complexity uh, and the 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 myriad ways that we exist as women that she really did. Yes. You know, I yes. totally agree with you, Kim, and it's really really um, important. You know. Um, you know, to make uh, to make a scene in ways that we really hadn't been. And and that we, you know, there was a, a form of erasure for the black woman, um, except when you when you pay attention to old m- movies, when you see things like that, you see a, a black woman as portrayed, and you wonder who is that? That's not us. But when she when a song of Solomon. Even though it was about a male, a lot, a large part, the women in the Song of Solomon, they grabbed you. They, and there was a sense of magical realism uh, in her yeah. work where she suspends time, place, everything. And the characters become everything. They become the soul of that book. There's this yep. one. Can I just say from the so- Song of Solomon, when mm-hmm. she's trying to explain to her daughter about love, and she just says, you think because he doesn't love you that you are worthless. You think that because he doesn't want you anymore that he is right, that his judgment and opinion of you are correct. If he throws you out, then you are garbage. You think he belongs to you because you want to belong to him. Don't. It's a bad word, belong, especially when you put it with somebody you love. Love shouldn't be like that. Did you ever see the way the clouds love a mountain? They circle all around it. Sometimes you can't even see the mountain for the clouds. But you know what? You go up top, and what do you see? His head. The clouds never cover the head. His head pokes through. Because the clouds let him, they don't wrap him up. They let him keep his head up high, free, with nothing to hide him or bind him. You can't own a human being. You can't lose what you don't own. Just reading that, she teaches lessons in the writing. You know, how many of us have loved someone so hard that we want them to basically, I hate to say, bend to our will, we want them to love us like we love them. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that she writes about is love. And she, to yeah. me, writes a handbook of how to love. Yeah. yeah. I, just brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Just brilliant. Absolutely. It's, I think she'll be read for the next hundred years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's we're we're very lucky and the idea by the way, what gave you this idea Wanda to to do a libation because it's so brilliant. Well, she's just a worthy ancestor and 
you know, we need to sing her <clears throat> sing her praises um as we do traditionally in our in our culture. I mean, if we were in Africa, we would be celebrating her for for the whole year. Um there will be songs being composed in her honor. Uh, everyone will be, you know, wailing and weeping and crying her name and sharing her work. And, you know, in this particular culture, you know, a giant can, you know, can <clears throat> can fall and no one says a word. And I'm thinking about all of these, these criminals that, you know, the whole nation stops and pauses. I'm like, why are we honoring this criminal? You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about when Ray Charles passed and it was at the same time that one of these criminals passed. And so, or Gil Scott Heron, you know, and and nothing, nothing said, is said in their honor. I mean, we're, nothing is being flown at half mast, you know, and, and these, you know, these are honored, honored um, trailblazers, you know, keepers of the culture because, because artists, are revolutionaries, right? I mean, they are so yeah. important to keep on creating in the midst of these kind of I mean, how could she create? I mean, she was a single parent. Um, she worked yeah. full time, you know, she was a college professor, and then she wrote in the morning <laughs> when the Amazing. children were still sleeping. Amazing. I mean, yeah. like really? And then how what book did she I'm trying to remember was it Song of Solomon? When she finally realized that she was a writer and that she didn't have to work all these jobs, that she could just be a writer. Oh. I mean, it's amazing, right? And so yeah. Yeah. we have to, we have to honor her. We have to. I mean, she's ours. She never. She always said that we were her audience. You know that she was not interested in the white gaze. You know, period. And and I have uh, something I was going to play about about racism, and that she that. Um, that she said that it's just really <laughs> it's it's just uh just sort of really sort of puts everything in perspective and I'm pretty sure you probably know it. Um but yeah, um this is certainly, you know, why I wanna do this. Do you want me to play the uh piece on racism? I know you said you have to go, Kim. Um but Well um, I, I, I have a meeting but I, is it is it very long? No, no, it's a couple of minutes. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I have I'm class young. at ten, so I'm gonna have to go soon. But yeah, I'd like to hear it. Okay. Yeah, I definitely okay, sure. would love to hear. All right, sure. Here we are. There is no such thing as race. None. Really? There's just the human race, scientifically, mm-hmm. anthropologically. Racism is a construct, mm-hmm. a social construct, and it has benefits. It has uh, money can be made off of it. In People who don't like themselves can feel better because of it. It can describe certain kinds of behavior that are wrong or misleading. So it has a social function, racism. But race can only be defined as a human being. If the racist white person, I don't mean the person who is examining his consciousness and so on, doesn't understand that he or she is also a race. It's also constructed. It's also made. And it also has some kind of serviceability. But when you take it away, I take your race away. And there you are, all strung out. And all you've got is your little self 
And what is that? What are you without racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? Are you still smart? you still like yourself? If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have done. Mm. In, In a substantial way? You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. Wanda, on the mm-hmm. um, event page, a person left, um, uh, uh, Adrian Richwell left two small quotes that she would like okay. read. May I read them? Okay. Oh, certainly. The first then, one is... Okay. Oh, I just want to let our, our two, um, we have two people um, in the studio that want to share. I just want to let them know that oh, I see them oh, and I'll be oh, right with them. No, 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 go no, ahead, Kim. More important. Oh, okay. Well, no, I'm a believer in the power of knowledge and the ferocity of beauty. So from my point of view, your life is already artful, waiting, just waiting for you to make it art. And the second one is oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. Does more than represent the limits of knowledge. It limits knowledge. And she said that um, during, I guess, her noble, um, noble acceptance speech. And I, I thought that was okay. important because just so much wisdom in those lines. Oh, go ahead. I'm finished. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I okay. want to say so badly, but I got to go. And thank you so much. Bye. Oh, well, thank you, Kim. We'll have to do this again. Bye-bye, Bye. Kim. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, Kim. Have a good rest of the day. <laughs> you, you both, you both have great days. Sure. Uh, good morning, and welcome to Wanda's Picks. Good morning. Wanda, can you hear me? Vera Noble? Yes, I can. Oh, Nadila, yes. <laughs> oh, super. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would like to, to talk about what Toni Morrison represents. She represents the best of womanhood. She used her skills to document African-American culture. She was able to capture the creativity, beauty, and social relevance of our black experience. And in weaving her stories from mystery to magic to mysticism, she gave a really special special dignity and affirmation to being black. And in my opinion, she should be seen as our word Orisha and Mambo. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that the ancestors are quite pleased with her. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So we have another guest in the studio. Um, uh, Share your name and um, your words about Toni Morrison. Hello? Hi. Hi, it's Nambi. Oh, hey, Nambi. Oh, wow, Nambi E. <laughs> Kelly. Yeah, you hello, are the hello. playwright who um, who adapted uh, jazz uh, to stage, and it was last seen at the uh, Marin Theater Company. I don't know if uh, Devorah or, uh, yeah, or Dr. Noble saw it. You did? Okay. Well, this yeah, is the playwright yeah, yeah. calling us from, are you calling us uh-huh. from Chicago? I'm or in L.A. <laughs> Oh, L.A. Oh, I'm in Los closer. Angeles. Super. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just the only thing I want to share, um, the words that Tony wrote that impacted me the most mm-hmm. is everything is now. Mm-hmm. She wrote everything is now, and that is a line from jazz that, Actually, oddly enough, was a line in a play I had written many years before I'd even read jazz. And so mm. when I saw it in the book, something in me kind of stopped. And then I thought, oh, wow, I'm in alignment with this great mind. And, um, and when I think about our people, when I think about how, um, how present ancestry is for us, how aware we are in this present form of the people who come after us. I'm very clear that what she said was so, so deep and so um, waiting to be unraveled and revealed as I continue to grow as a woman, as an artist, as a lover, as a human being, that everything is now that, so that what that also means is that Tony always was and Tony always will be and that her wisdom that she imparted to us is is in the fabric of the moment we were first conceived as as people, you know, so that that means that that greatness carries us through all eternity. Um, that's what I want to share. Oh, thank, thank you, Nabi. That was wonderful. I have yeah. to run. I have a class at ten o'clock, <laughs> and it's twenty-two. So I am. No problem. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Wanda, and everyone else who's sharing. This has really been wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank Bye-bye. you, Deborah. Yeah. Have a good day at work. Okay. okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, Nabila, do you want to share anything else? Oh. Uh, I can speak for someone else there. I'm I'm okay. <laughs> But oh. <laughs> I think it's just real important to acknowledge that um, that how she used her skills, how she used her life to document mm-hmm. and show everyone the appreciation of African American culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, um, we have another guest. Let's see who this person is. Uh, good morning. Uh, could you introduce yourself and, and share your reflection on Toni Morrison? Hello? 
Uh oh. Well, that person Hello, is gone. Right? Oh. Oh. Yeah. Uh huh. Hi. So, uh, all week, I have been feeling this welling up, even as I am now. I just feel so deeply, um, I just feel so deeply moved by her beauty, her truth, and her, her listening deeply to herself. And... Mm. Sometimes I feel like it's just hard to find words when you respect somebody's way with language and with um, the way that they have thrived and lived their life. And Mm -hmm. her example of being free in that way comes around me all week, and I'm so grateful. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And and um, I didn't catch your name. What's your name? My name is Patricia Hewlett. I live in Berkeley, California. Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. Appreciate it. Well, so I I'm hope going. It makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah, yes, definitely. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna play uh, an S. Oh, you're welcome. I keep on interrupting you. Sorry. No, I just wanted to thank you for making this available and uh, deep sharing. Oh, you're quite welcome. So I'm going to share um, uh, an excerpt of an interview with Toni Morrison and Angela Davis. Uh, It was a part of the uh, New York Library um, uh, speakers series, and uh, and this is just a short clip. It was um, the conversation was was over an hour, and and it's available. But this is just a little short part of it. So nobody's moderating us. No, we're just talking. We're just talking. Ooh. We're talking about um, Douglas, yes. libraries, literacy. literacy, and liberation. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I am impressed with what I've only recently discovered, which was that this country is unique in the world in terms of the distribution of libraries throughout the country. Uh, You cannot go in rural areas in Europe or in Africa or in Asia, rural areas and find libraries the way you can here, every little town. You know, I was in jail in New York. I don't know, did you mention that I was in jail? Okay. Okay, some people don't know. And one of the first places I went, I was able to go in the jail, was the library. And I didn't see very many interesting books uh, (laughs) there. So what I did was I had people send books to me while I was there, and I wanted to share those books with all of the other women. There were something like a thousand women there. And I was not allowed to do that. As a matter of fact, in the library, there was a big cardboard box. You could receive the books. I could receive the books, and I could read the books myself. It was okay mm-hmm. yeah. for me to read them. But don't share them. With but them. don't share them. Uh-huh. And one of them was uh, George Jackson's book, oh, yeah. uh, Soledad Brothers. Yeah, that Soledad. was uh, not allowed at all. Oh, yeah. Although, <laughs> you know, one of the things I learned um, when I was 
in jail there was, you know, how to uh, secrete <laughs> certain kinds of things. <laughs> and so we were able to... <laughs> so we had these clandestine reading groups with books that were smuggled out of that uh. box in the library. Uh, and it kind of reminded me of Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass's okay. effort to uh, get an education, to learn how to read, and, and, and his idea that um, education really was liberation. I mean, he, he describes this painstaking process of learning. He says at one point he dares the, a, 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 a white boy who was around to prove that he could write better than Frederick Douglass himself could. Now, Frederick Douglass really didn't know how to write that much, uh, so the white boy could write a lot more, and in the process, he learns what the white boy was writing. Uh, when, when the prisons get out, they get no... They owe. They owe money, oh, because... Yeah, because they have to pay, they have to pay for their own room and board. Right. Yeah. They're in college. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the students, right? right? <laughs> room and board, you get out and you have this bill. If your family can't pay, you... <laughs> Not only if you paid your in time for whatever, but I was interested in your, in your book because I'm not sure I understand fully that separation, well that's not, well the implication is that there's a difference, well there is a difference between vengeance and justice. We have to assume that if we want justice for some bad activity by a bad person, we want punishment, we want restraint, we don't want rehabilitation. And that assumes that there is something called the other, there's a stranger, that your neighbor or the criminal, the so-called criminal, is some other thing. my two um, guests that are still in the studio. Um, any comments on, on what I just shared? Would you like to hear some more uh, from Toni Morrison? I have other clips that I could share. i just like to end on this, this note. Okay. That, um, in her in Toni Morrison's craft, she gave special dignity and affirmation to to us, to her people, mm-hmm. and um, that's why she was not selfish. She was thinking of us and how we will be able to listen to those words and realize that we are. We're special. We're sacred beings, divine. And sacred beings living in a human, having a human experience. And so I want to um, end with that note. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Nabila. What a pleasure to have you on.
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Wanda. Oh, you're quite welcome. You have a good rest of the day. I want to share um, uh, something from um, a comment from uh, Dr. Halifa Oshimare, who is a professor emerita uh, African American African Studies in the University of California Davis, and she writes, "Tony Morrison was a writer's writer who could create magic with a few words and turn a phrase. She was fiercely and unapologetically dedicated to palmating the depths of Black people: good, bad, ugly, and beautiful." Ms. Morrison laid bare the souls of Black folk in the mid to late 20, 20th century that Du Bois introduced us to at the beginning. She earned her place as an honored ancestor. Ashe. Well, I was thinking about sharing, um, I hope at this point everyone uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area has gotten an opportunity to see um, the uh, the film um, uh, directed by Timothy Greenfield Sanders, uh, Toni Morrison, Pieces That I Am, I had an interview with uh, the director, and um, uh, it's been about, I don't know, I had an uh, interview with the director in June, and I played it lots of times <laughs> on the air. And um, and and from, from the film website, you can get all these great clips. And, and a few of them, um, you know, with, uh, I think there were 12 people interviewed, um, uh, one of them um, is uh, Farrah Griffin, and she talks about Sula, uh, the novel that Toni Morrison uh, wrote that it's just a really um, beautiful tale about friendship. And uh, and then um, there is another clip where Toni Morrison talks about um, how she got the idea for uh, Blue as Eye and um, – and, and, uh, and so I am thinking about playing uh, these two clips. Um, and then there was a really, really great interview um, way back in 1988. <laughs> and I think it was on Charlie Rose, and it was really awesome. And um, and I really like, uh, there's another clip called My World is a Black World. So I'm going to play a few clips and see if some other folks join us. So I'm going to start with uh, Sula, uh, Farrah Griffin talking about Sula. And, and then I'm going to shift into some of the other clips that I mentioned. I remember reading at 13, Sula. There was a group of girls on my block. Believe it or not, in between jumping double dutch and playing jacks, we also shared books. And somehow in that circulation, there was this book, Sula, with this black woman with a soft afro on the cover. And we read it. And I remember my friend, they could not stand Sula because she slept with her best friend's husband. And actually, that just made her more interesting to me. She broke a taboo. Seeing that there was a character like Sula in the world, and it just gave me a world of language to escape to, but also a world that I recognized as a young black woman in a working class community. It showed me the magic of my own world that I didn't see. And after reading her, it was hard to see my own world in the same way. 
And here, here is a, another clip, um, and I think I'm not sure um, if this is um, the one with uh, Hilton Owls, a New York uh, critic, uh, but I'm going to play it. My world is a black world. My world is a black world. She was doing something that a lot of black writers who had come up in the 70s weren't doing, which was to write about the stories without having to talk about excising whiteness. And she didn't do it in a way that was about saying that the white world was wrong. The white world was just peripheral if it existed at all. I didn't want to speak for black people. I wanted to speak to and to be among, it's us. So the first thing I had to do was to eliminate the white gaze. Jimmy Baldwin used to talk about that. The little white man that sits on your shoulder <laughs> and checks out everything you do and say, doesn't knock him off. And, you know, you're free. Now I own the world. I mean, I can write about anything to anyone, for anyone. I don't have to have this white, judgmental eye checking me, editing me, approving of me. I remember an incident from my own childhood when a very close friend of mine and I, we were walking down the street. We were discussing whether God existed. And she said he did not. And I said he did. But then she said she had proof. She said, I have been praying for two years for blue eyes. And he never gave me any. So I just remember turning around and looking at her. She was very, very black. And she was very, 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 very beautiful. How painful. Can you imagine that kind of pain? About that, about color. So I wanted to say, you know, this kind of racism hurts. This is not lynchings and murders and drownings. This is interior pain. So deep for an 11-year-old girl to believe that if she only had some characteristic of the white world, she would be okay. Yeah. I um I remember um finding uh this piece um about um a really wonderful celebration of Toni Morrison or like an embrace um uh, with, with you know people that love her. Um Nikki Giovanni uh sort of pulled it together and it was uh it's called sheer good fortune and um and there there is a uh, video of its of Nikki Giovanni talking about um you know, sort of hosting um this particular event at at the institution where where she uh is uh, on faculty and i just thought it was so beautiful cuz it was around the time when Toni Morrison um uh her son uh Shade had had passed, and um, and um, and she was in a wheelchair at that time. I don't know if it was because of her hip, um, 
because when she was uh, <laughs> uh, when she was in conversation with Angela Davis, um, she told her that you know um, she had just gotten a new hip and it was marvelous, but her body was just getting used to it, <laughs> and it hadn't caught up yet to the new technology. So, um, so I'm not sure if you know sort of this predates that, but anyway, I want to share a little bit of uh, of Nikki Giovanni talking about sheer good fortune. Um, and it was a really beautiful conversation. She brought in like youth from the town um, to to uh, introduce her and to um, to uh, there was a recitation. Rita Dove was there. Angela Davis. I mean, all of her her good friends. Walter Mosley were were in the house. Uh, Eugene Redmond. Um, but uh, yeah, and but the conversation was between. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maya Angelou, you know, the grand dom of, of poetry, you know, and Toni Morrison, the grand dom of, of, of you know, of uh, of fiction and uh, literature. Um, but then both of them do both. So, you know, that's, <laughs> they're both just grand women, right? So anyway, uh, I just, I was looking at that sort of preparing for the show and I just thought, oh, let me share this because maybe people don't know it. Arguably is the largest gathering of black intellectuals since Margaret Walker had the 200th anniversary of uh, Phyllis Wheatley. I've known Toni Morrison for, I know, 40 years. She's been here before for us, uh, almost 20 years ago now when I first came. Toni's son, Slade, died. And as a mother of a son, though one doesn't have to be a mother, let alone a mother of a son, to recognize the sadness. I thought that the writing community should wrap our arms around Tony. I just thought we should do something. And I thought, well, okay, if what you want is to let her know she is loved, then the next thing we would need is Maya. One of the joys of being my age is that we still have the privilege of being in, in, in your company, being in Tony's company. We're getting ready to celebrate Tony Morrison we have the grand dame of poetry, and we're going to have the grand dame of fiction on the same stage okay. together. And the noonday of poetry, arranging it, my <laughs> land. Oh, my goodness. But have you and Dr. Morrison been on stage together before? Or? Well, there's a, a, a festival, the Welsh, uh, the Hay on Wye. Festival, and we we hung together oh, to yeah. lady friends and sister friends, and then when she earned the Nobel, I gave a party for her here. The United States should have done it. That's right. Time magazine should have put it on the cover. You too. know what? Yeah. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. yeah. People live in direct relation to the heroes and sheroes they have, mm -hmm. always and in always. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I I take my hat and do a salam to Nikki Giovanni, is she came up with the idea of honoring Toni Morrison. Yeah. It's just right. It is. It's just right. 
I tend to be partial, uh, actually, to Virginia Tech because I think that we are a growing institution. I'm, I'm just a dreamer, and I'm just always thinking of how do we bring things together that haven't happened. We are here in the arms of Appalachia, so we are in an incredible, uh, in, in terms of creativity, position, but we also are international. So we are reaching out, but the arts are key, and I so appreciate people just saying to people like me, well, dream, do it, think it up. We have the unique honor of having Toni Morrison, who is only the second American woman to have won a Nobel. This is about love. This is a volunteer effort on the part of everybody who's coming. We're here because we're interested, and it delights us to be a part of this event. So I wanted to open uh, this floor to questions or comments or... The title of tomorrow's event, Sheer Good Fortune. Where is that? That's in Sula. It's in Sula. It's the dedication. Sula. Yeah. I uh, wrote The Bluest Eye and over a long period of time. I started in Washington. I put it down. But I found that after I finished The Bluest Eye, I was really sort of miserable. Nothing particularly miserable was going on, but I just thought, oh, God. The world looked incoherent and sort of stupid. And uh, anyway. So then I got this other idea. The white feminists were talking about, oh, women have to be friends with each other. We cannot be competitive. And I was thinking, wait a minute. Black women have always been friends. I mean, if you didn't have each other, you would have had nothing. You know what I mean? So I thought about that, and I thought about friendship that would be tested. And so I wrote, it's sheer good fortune. If you miss, you know, sort of long for things before they... Leave you. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, it's been fun. Thank you. If I had just tried to do something, it, it, it would have been insufficient. It would have been with love, but I wanted the writing community to speak up. I wanted the political community. I wanted us to come together. There ought to be something that lets us come together in love, that lets us just lift each other up, that has no other agenda. We just reached out to about 30 people here to say we would like for you to come. We want you to be a part of this. I'm a writer and writers do things alone. It's our inclination. The only thing that I do together is I play bid whist. Well, there's only one rule in bid whist trust your partner. It's another reason that I enjoy sheer good fortune. When you do things like this, you end up with partners. And we have, which I am thrilled about, we have a group of youngsters coming from the Bronx, and they will be introducing Dr. Maya Angelou. I'm so excited to be able to show Virginia Tech to a bunch of youngsters from the Bronx. They, they need to know we're here and they need to know that we have a welcoming campus. What we're going to do, let's go off stage. So, again, um, here, good fortune. You can watch the rest of it um, online. It's really, really a beautiful um, sort of a reflection on, on, on this, this, um, this program that uh, Nikki Giovanni um, I guess facilitated um, with uh, other other 
willing participants uh, in the collaboration. Okay, so now I think I am going to uh, play uh, an excerpt of an interview, 1988. I think this was with Charlie Rose, and it was so good. I'm trying to think, okay, we'll do, I'll stop at this particular point. Oh, no, this is so good. I think I'll stop at this particular point. So so anyway, uh, not going to necessarily play at all, but I'm going to play a little, little taste so you can get a feel for it. It's really nice. Tony Morrison. Oh, wait a second. Um, let me see. Uh, we have another person called into the studio, I think. Um, good morning. Good morning. How are you? And... I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, so tell us your name, and um, are you joining us to share uh, something uh, about Tony Morrison? Well, just, um, you know, I definitely, um, my name is Shabazz. And I'm calling from mm-hmm. South Carolina. And, um, you know, even as we are speaking of one of our um, great fallen black African artists, um, I think it's, especially when you're talking about libation, that those are things that, to me, celebrate culture. And it helps me navigate where we need to go or where I need to go. And a lot a lot of times that's what art does. Art is able to imitate life and life imitates art. So we're drawing this connection and speaking about the importance of, you know, celebrating those that not only do and and, and have shown us given us great African black art but they are able to do it in a way that is going to be moral and dignifying, right? And that is good because mm-hmm. we do know how raunchy, how quote-unquote ratchet our arts have become, and we can dump a billion of dollars. We we have hip-hop now. Hip-hop is making probably over a trillion dollars through hip-hop. But it, it is a one where we show our all-time degeneration. We, we celebrate the, uh, you know, a quote-unquote importance of doing drugs, of uh, de- degrading each other, putting each other down. And this is brought to us via the anti-culture or the culture of hip-hop. So I think it is definitely very important of celebrating uh, the sister Tony and those others that have come and have given us, you know, that that level of upper echelon um, quality of, of 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 artwork to our people. And and now you you see, I'm kind of upset, but but that thing is like far away from us. I remember the days of coming up where we did appreciate those good musicians, you know, even to the singers. Nowadays, everybody wants to sing like a robot. Uh, Frankie Beverly and Mays, I can remember his his great music and his his his, his intensity in in making sure that his artwork actually got to the people and got there in an integral fashion is the thing that we should lift up as a people. But I don't think we do because it's okay for us to turn on the radio and listen to this crazy stuff that's going on. So I want to appreciate um, the sister in which she you know her her good works and. You know your show for celebrating and highlighting it. 
Oh, sure. Well, thank you, Shabazz, um, for your comments. And um, just uh, sort of in defense of of uh, hip-hop culture, um, you know the roots are, are African, and um, before the commercialization and the co-opting um, through, you know, economics of of the uh, of the genre, there were, you know, lots of conscious, um, you know, Africans, um, people of African descent. Um, it was sort of like the drum, you know, from those 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 communities that were cut off from the mainstream. Yes, and then once mm-hmm. the mainstream saw, oh, we can monetize this, <laughs> you know, there were certain um, certain artists that were selected, and and the ones mm-hmm. that were selected were the ones that were um, uh, not celebrating, you know, our culture in in a in a positive or uh, respectful way, and and that's mm-hmm. sort of what lingers. But there still are, you know, folks that go back, and some young folks that are, you know, after you know, uh, sort of. I guess mining the roots of the tree as opposed to you know the commercial aspect of it. So I just want to you know oh, give and, them and, their props. And, and, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you are absolutely right. And myself is I'm 40 years old now, but I've been a rapper for like over two decades mm-hmm. now. And it uh-huh. is a thing that when you're having to formulate different ideas and different concepts out of the ones that are popular. So rather than teaching or telling children to throw your money in the air or make it rain, which is a popular cliche in the hip-hop community. Now you're encouraging your children to, you know, save and invest their money. And, and, and that, like you said, salute to those brothers and sisters that are doing so. And, and, and everybody hasn't lost it, but you're right. What you said is absolutely right. And I think that's important why we must not sell our integrity. We, we, whoever it was that started doing it, I feel like you're right. They took the check, but we can't sell the secret recipe that has been very vital. Our drum has mm-hmm. been very vital for our come up as black as African people. Now we can't sell the secret ingredient to our, our recipe, you know, and that's what we, it sounds like we have done and have been doing. So thank you. Thank, thank the sister. Thank all those people that are doing the integral work at, you know, making sure that we get back to what we need to get back to. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you um, before you go um, if you have a yes, you know a short um, piece that maybe um, is you might like to dedicate to Toni Morrison's legacy. You could share it now if you like. Uh I would, but I'm not. I'm not actually around my work as of right now. Okay. Um, okay. And I do. I do a lot of work, especially for people's people in, in you know in their transitioning. Um, but as mm. of right now, I'm, I'm outside right now, and I don't have anything. But maybe, you know, in the future show, I'm pretty sure this won't be the only and last time you will celebrate the sister or, you know, the likes of, of her. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I look back, uh, you know, look forward to calling back in and being definitely prepared, mm-hmm. you know, the next time I'm, I'm, I want to apologize to you and, you know, your, your, your supporters. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Shabazz, for joining us and thank you for your your, your for your contributions to the libations for Tony Morrison. Oh. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. Sure. Peace and blessings. Peace. Okay. So we're gonna play um 
a little bit of this interview that I've been telling you about that I think you will appreciate. Toni Morrison is here. She is everything that one would expect from a great writer, and she has been awarded with a Pulitzer Prize and a Nobel Prize. Her new novel is called Paradise. We want to talk to her about that. We want to talk to her about her life and talk to her about her views on America and the issues facing this country. She has been here before, and I look forward to having her here for the hour. Welcome to this broadcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, how long has this been in the making? I began thinking about it in 92, right after I finished jazz. I didn't know it was a book at that time. It just seemed like some disparate ideas, little bits and pieces. From was there a question you were asking? Ultimately, yes. How could they do it? How could they do that? How could they put their finger on the trigger and then pull it? Paradise for you is what? The book. The book. It's an interrogation of the whole idea of paradise. It's the thing we think about, imagine, either in this life or another, all humans do. But when we come up with the solution, it's always sort of limited in some way. Uh, it's, it's real estate. It's uh, jeweled streets and fruit, nectar. But more important than anything, the whole lot of people who can't get in. And that's the definition of paradise. People who can't come in. That's right. You went to Brazil. Uh-huh and you took notice of a supposed incident yes. in which men attacked women yes. violently yes. in a cathedral or a convent or something. Yes, yes. That gave you the kernel of an idea. It did. I was asking the question because these women that they had assaulted were black nuns who were in a cathedral, a church that catered and raised young black girls to become nuns. It was hundreds of years old. And the, according to the story, they had been practicing condomble, an Africanist religion, in the basement and Catholicism on the first floor. And they were uh, attacked. Uh, somebody complained. And the police came just to arrest them, but they were frightened and they ran away. And they were shot down. And I only later learned that that was probably untrue. But it wasn't without truth, <laughs> you know, just because it was not factual. And in that country or in life, and that was the question I put to myself, as I described earlier, how could they do that? How could they shoot some girls for whatever reason and actually pull the trigger? Armed men. That was the first question. Did you find, and do you find here, an answer to that question? In a way, a little bit. Um, the pack, uh, how perfectly responsible, intelligent, even mature men can behave in a pack, in a group. Uh, how easy it is to find uh, reasons for one's interior decay outside in somebody else. 
how satisfying that is. If something's going wrong in your own little neighborhood and you don't want to face up to that, it's just easier, more secure to find the fault outside. And find also, indeed, and for men whose security and life depends on a certain kind of family that they control, all of the goodness, all of the strength, all of the wealth of the community is due to them, is due to their intelligence, their courage, their sagacity, their generosity. It has worked for them, and now it's being threatened. I want to pull back for a moment and talk a little bit more about the, the town of Ruby. And remember this first line. They shot the white girl first. With the rest, they can take their time. No need to hurry out here. They are 17 miles from a town which has 90 miles between it and any other. Hiding places will be plentiful in the convent, but there is time, and the day has just begun. First paragraph, last mention of someone's race. Last time. Last time. More about that later. What is this town? This what? is uh, a representative of a whole lot of towns that were um, founded in Oklahoma and other places after Reconstruction around the turn of the century. And it is paradise. It is heaven. It is an all-black town. Freed slaves looking for something. Looking for a place where they don't have to respond to white terror or intervention where they can be the best that they can be, where they're secure, where they can, you know, be men, make families, reproduce in, you know, in paradise, in a closed haven. Isolated. Totally isolated, so that they can grow and blossom, which they do for a while. And there's the convent 17 miles away. That's right. And who's in the convent? Originally, it was um, a pleasure house for Ed Embezzler. And when that collapsed, a uh, society of women, some nuns, purchased it to educate Native American girls, which worked for a few years, and then that collapsed. So now it's a place to crash. The nuns are gone. There's just the old servant there. One by one, some women show up there, and for various reasons, stay there or go away and come back. And for them, it's uh, shelter from, you know, aggravated lives, from brutality, or from their own secrets and their own personal demons, things they just haven't faced up to. So they all live there in some chaos, some dysfunction, but together, nobody's bothering them. And the old woman doesn't much care what they do. It's the time is 1976, mm -hmm. this book, this awful crime is committed. What is it that they fear about the convent? The men? Yes. They have male fears, which is they feel besieged. Uh, they feel that when women are loose, anything can happen. If you can't control the race, um, if you can't levy taxes, you can't decide who is legitimate and who is not. You can't decide 
to whom the children belong, and you can't tell the women what to do, then you have no authority for these men who are 50s men. They fought in the wars. They came back They're representative of men at that time. Right. Yes, exactly. They came back after World War II. That's right. And they've watched what's happened in the 60s, and they've watched the children they're change. They're horrified. And they're horrified by change. Horrified. Because they're in isolation. They're in isolation, and they're not so different from a lot of African-American people in the late 50s and 60s. You know, nowadays, everybody loved Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody was involved passionately in the civil rights. It's like everybody in France was in the resistance. But at the time, there were History difficulties. Tells different. Yes, there were people who were worried about uh, stirring up things. There were people who had made peace. There were people who knew their strategies worked, and they didn't want anything that different. And these people represent that element of um, African-American communities that were very wary of change, of, of aggressive change, nonviolent though it may be. It really was penetration into the uh, dime stores and the buses and insisting on rights overnight and getting oneself hurt. So these people represent that uh, uh, section of the community. How do you, is it just your gift of language that you find the capacity to, to get at the heart of violence? I work at it, I work at it. <laughs> um, and think about it a lot. So much of that is alien to me, you know. I don't know what it's like to really feel good beating up somebody. I don't really know what it's like to, um, ostracize somebody. Uh, but it's so ordinary a part of human life. Um, you have to try to figure out what are they thinking? Uh, what is that terror? Uh, what do they think is going to fall if they don't assault those people? You know, I was originally going to call this book War yeah, because it seemed to me that that's really what it was about, not the great military battles, but just how it is that violence becomes the solution for some so-called worthy cause. Where does this, this is the third of a trilogy. Yes. Beloved, jazz, paradise. Mm -hmm. Where does it fit? Explain to me where this fits as a part of a trilogy. Well, the first two were about love, excesses, distortions, a love of a mother right. for a child that was all-inclusive. She'd rather see her dead than back in bondage. That's right. That kind of love. Jazz is about the love of a man for a young woman. Mm -hmm. Romantic love that is irrational, excessive irrational. Um, I cannot live without you, literally. And uh, paradise is about love of God when people truly believe, not in the sort of vaguely secular, halfway religious notion of perhaps there is a God or I hope there's one, and not with disdain. I didn't want to um, write about people whose faith was absolute and whose relationship with their God was intimate and who had conversations, dreams, visions, uh, who had a, a really close relationship 
with their makeup. I don't want to discredit that and pretend that it's not real or true or, or not uh, common. And enhancing. These people really believe that their lives are structured by and glorified by God. That kind of love which passes all understanding, which is simply faith. I wanted to, you know, try to describe that and try to describe how that love also can go awry, can be like the others. Do you think it's been sometimes said that I grew up in the South, as you know, and I would go to black churches mainly for the music? But there, were, there was always the notion that because African-Americans had suffered, that God, there was a stronger bond somehow with God. Than with white people and God? Because there was a belief that there was going to be a deliverance, that the next world had to be. There's a lot of that. They needed it. And it worked. It really did work. Otherwise, how could those people have survived that? How could they, knowing full well that the preference was that they disappear, die, work themselves to death? How could they, without the gospel for inspiration, without preachers who cared about them, without the community of the church, without that music. Without there having to be some higher power who was not evil. They were on a moral plateau that was unassailable. Right. They knew that this was not the real nature of God's universe. And they could endure this hell because there was something better. There had to be. There were promises kept or not kept? They felt kept. Mm. Not so much. The early ones, of course, assumed yeah. it would be in the next mm. life. And the Civil Rights Revolution was infused by church. religion Absolutely. and church. Would not have happened without black Could churches. Not have. Could not have happened. Because the churches are not only the religious sources of people's inspiration, they're very political and community-minded. They're the places where people can meet can assemble. They may not be able to do that anywhere else in a town. They're the places where you know what's going on. Um, they are the leaders of the community in a sense. Those women and those men who are in those churches already had laid the groundwork for anybody coming down there uh, in the civil rights movement. They were already there. And they had hidden one another, protected one another. Yeah, from the time of from, That's right, from the beginning. And they had functioned under duress since, you know, they got here. They had preached in caves, in, in what they used to call quilt churches. All of that. And they understood what pressure they were under. So that they were absolutely critical to the civil rights movement and to the life of African Americans. I mentioned race is on the first sentence. You don't want the reader to know race. Because what? Well, I have a very, very raced community, which is the town. All Ruby, black. All black. 
that becomes clear instantly right. in the two or three pages. Everybody in this town is black. That's who they are, and that's why they're there. The other community is con consists of women, and I withhold the information about their race for a couple of reasons. One principal reason was I wanted to sort of underscore how we distort race, how we have so much baggage ourselves as readers that we bring to a narrative that we, you know, if you don't say somebody's black. You assume it's white. That's right. So that's true in literature. If you say they're black, then they're black. If you don't identify race, the assumption is that they're white. You want to break through that? Absolutely. You also want to say that race is the least informing piece of information oh, yeah. about a person. Sure. When I know that you're white, I only know stereotypical information about you. I only know, you know, assumptions about you. But as an individual, I don't know anything about you. That's like knowing you have two ears on your head. That's all that is. However, it doesn't mean that race doesn't matter. It matters a great deal, but that's because we made it matter. We have made it matter. So now culturally, politically and economically, it does. But when you think about one-on-one -on -one relationships, it doesn't. And when the reader looks at these women, some readers never think about whether that one is, which one is white or black or what have you. Others are disturbed because they don't really know. And I've had a lot of fun, I have to tell you. <laughs> I you because one reviewer says, with a great deal of authority, a runaway white girl. And another reviewer says so-and-so who is white. And another one says a third person. But it's not a question of a question for them. What's interesting to me, they don't wonder if they're right about who is the white girl. They say it with absolute certainty. And I... <laughs> I have to admit, that's fun for me because I know why they think this one is white or that one and so on. Speaking of reviews, you're on the cover of Time magazine, The Sound and Fury of Toni Morrison. With her new novel, Paradise, the Nobel Laureate shows that she's the great American storyteller. 60 Minutes, our friend Ed Bradley is profiling you for this most watched American television program. Uh, everybody's talking about this book. The New York Times had two reviews. They could not have been more diametrically opposed. One said, this is far from your best work, compared it to Beloved and said, everything that made Beloved good <laughs> made this one bad. bad. The other said, this is her best work. What do you think about all that? Well, you know, I've been out here a long time. <laughs> this is not your first rodeo, is it? This is not my first rodeo. This is not my first deeply critical yeah. review. I've had lots. Uh, some of them I respect because they're done by people who have a long history of, of uh, writing reviews carefully. And some I don't. I read them all. 
Um, the bad review is bad if it's non-complimentary. One of those reviews in the New York Times was not this bad. It was insulting because it was not careful. It wasn't a thoughtful review. I don't mind anybody saying this is inferior work, this is mediocre. I mean, there are books all over the world that I loathe, and I don't want anybody to tell me I can't loathe them, even if I admire some other works they do. I don't, that's not the point. The point is I like, I like a little careful respect and thoughtfulness. I don't like a bad review that's badly written. Now, that's insulting to me. And insulted because it wasn't a careful consideration, didn't try hard enough to understand what you were trying to get at in this book. It was like 11th grade student who turns in a review of a book, a book report, and says, uh, I hated this book. It's not as good as something else. And what you do, if you're the 11th grade English teacher, you just give it back to them. And so you have to be better at explaining your reasons than this. That's what I thought about that. <laughs> Did you write a letter? Did you... Oh, no, uh, Charlie, I would spend a lot of time writing letters about even good reviews when they miss the point. Yeah. There are lots of, I'd, and, uh, in fact, that's good reviews could be thing. as sophomoric as of you course. think this review was because they might have missed it and just simply Absolutely. joined in the yeah. praise no, no. because you were Nobel laureate. That's right. They might have done that and just missed it completely. But I, people are entitled to that, you know. I mean, I would prefer that they were all useful in some publicity yeah. way. But I really wait for... You know, scholarship. Well, tell me what's the most insightful you. thing you have read about this book. Someone else looking at what you've done, not you, and saying, this is what I see. What rang a bell for you in terms of understanding what Tony Marshall was about in this book? Well, there were little lines that I remember in Paul Gray's observations. Which is in, in the Time, Time magazine, magazine piece. piece. Uh, when he made some reference to the shallowness of considering me a, this a feminist novel. Yeah. The reason is this is men versus women and because you are in a sense portraying these women as victims or they're perceived as victims, you're therefore writing a feminist yeah. tract. And that's the shallowest reading of the book. Not the only shallow reading it can receive, but it certainly is one shallow reading, I think. I think there's much more there. Uh, and if there isn't, then it's my fault. But the point is that I do not write out of these categories. This is the one place where I can do anything. I do not have to be, um, I don't have to speak for. I don't represent a group. I don't, uh, I'm not, whatever my political, you know, associations are, that's not where I work them out. I don't work them out in literature. Literature for me is something else. It's a free place. It's a very hard place. It's where philosophically things trouble me and I am trying to approach and help the, and, and hope the reader accompanies me on some inquiry about these things. These women are not held up as um, saints uh, and the men are not demons. I don't write comic books. It's much more complicated than that for me. And when I am reduced to category A or B, which I have been a lot, uh, I just, you know, blink a little bit and go on. But I have to tell you that the reviews about Paradise and much African-American literature are infinitely superior 
to what they were 20 years ago, when everything was read as a sociological tract. Everything was read as though it had this agenda, as though there was only one black narrative. And there are hundreds of them, thousands perhaps, and that's what's reflected in the, in the reviews of other people's books and also in mine, so that when I see the differences between those two reviews you mentioned, or three or four, it's tantamount to me that there is no single black narrative and that one person has a hold on it and that everybody knows what it is. And we should say that's, per that's better. That's it's much better. better. Hosanna. Yes. The idea of writing about race or the absence of race, um, Phil Moyers, I think, once asked you the question, can you imagine writing a novel that's not centered Mm -hmm. about race. And you said, absolutely. Yes. Will you? That's what he asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, see, I answered the question he didn't pose. You know, um, Tolstoy writes about race. Yeah. All the time. Um, so does Zola. So does James Joyce. Now, if Anybody can go up to an imaginary James Joyce and say, you write about race all the time. It's central in your novels. When are you going to write about what? Because you see, the person who asks that question doesn't understand that he is also, he or she is also raced. So to ask me when am I going to stop, and, or when, if I can, is to ask a question that, in a, in a sense, is its own answer. Yes, I can write about white people. White people can write about black people. Anything can happen in art. There are no boundaries there. Having to do it or having to prove that I can do it is what was embarrassing or insulting. In this book, I did. It was insulting that people, help me understand, what was insulting? The, the idea that you felt like you had to prove that you could write he without... Yeah, the question was posed as though it were a desirable thing to do, right. to write about white people or to write not about race. That's what that means to right. me. Um, and that it was a difficult thing to do, a higher level of artistic endeavor, or it was more important uh, that I was still writing about marginal people, and why don't I come into the mainstream? Aren't you importing too much into the question? Maybe. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, what else could it be, Charlie? What, what does that mean? What does that question mean? You tell me if I'm making too much. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you, you... I don't think it probably means... I didn't ask the question, so I don't think it probably means... But I don't think it had to do about you were marginalizing by not writing about. It only works if I can go to William Styron, well maybe not William Styron because he has done it, um, somebody major, white, and say as a journalist. Can you write about black people? That's right. Can I say that? What kind of question is that to put to Ed Doctorow? Who has done it, by the way. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, if I can say when are you going to write about black people? 
to a white writer, if that's a legitimate question to a white writer, then it is a legitimate question to me. I just don't think it is. You know, so you have, the glove has to be pulled inside out. If it's, it's, in other words, it's not a literary question. It has nothing to do with the literary imagination. It's a sociological question that should not be put to, to me. It should, I couldn't ask that of any writer who was, you know, I wouldn't ask it of a black writer when you're going to write about white people. Now, maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me now or later if I've blown it up all out of proportion. I don't think so. I just don't know what the question means except what I think it means. You think it may just be a little question, a little curious, you know, small incidental question. When, when are you going to... Maybe I'm responding because I have had reviews in the past that have accused me of not writing about white people. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said, this is all well and good, but one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people. As though our lives have no meaning and no depths without the white gaze. And I've spent my Tony Morrison is here. She is everything that one would expect. I'm going to end uh, the uh, Charlie Rose interview there. You can catch, you can look at it on YouTube. Um, I think I have this like 20 more minutes to this great conversation again. That was 1988, and and the one that I'm not playing <laughs> was another interview um, uh, from the New York Times a little bit later, and it's shorter. But I um, I think I want to end with. Uh, a song that uh, I uh, I heard, and I thought, oh, this will be so perfect for um, you know a tribute to our dear sister um, ancestor Toni Morrison, and it's by Shamar Allen, um, uh, musician, trumpeter, and uh, out of New Orleans, uh, Laura Laura Ninth Ward, and uh, yeah, he's a survivor of the floods, the levee breaking. And and he's going to be in town on Sunday at the uh, San Jose um, Jazz Summer Festival, which begins tonight. And there are so many wonderful artists that are performing. Like tonight, um, the Marcus Shelby Orchestra is going to be featuring uh, Tiffany Austin at 8. In Vogue, it's going to be on about, I think, 10, 10.30 or something. Uh, um some other other great artists are not tonight necessarily, but throughout the um, the weekend. Besides, like I mentioned, uh, Shamar Allen, um, who is going to be performing on Sunday. Let me tell you when. I'm going to sort of work backwards here because <laughs> I was just like taking notes. I'm like, oh, you need to write down when these folks are going to be performing so you can make sure you don't miss them. So um, so I wrote them down in in the opposite order. Uh, yeah, Shamar is and the underdogs are gonna be at six PM uh on the blues big easy uh stage. Um let's see, um Diane Reeves is um Sunday as well at four o'clock on the Sobrato stage and um 
the uh, OJs are going to be on Sunday. It's like, oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Brother Tyrone and the Mind Benders, another New Orleans uh, ensemble, are going to be on Sunday at 2 on the Blues Big Easy stage. He's got this great piece called If You Ain't Cheating." So, so wonderful. Really, really wonderful. Um, Carl Allen, who I haven't seen in a long time, is bringing his um, – Art Blakey Centennial Project. Uh, wow, isn't that amazing? Art Blakey, uh, this is 100th year. That is so awesome. And that's at 2 p.m., um, I think, on Sunday as well. Um, let me just um, let's see. Uh, they've got, oh, the uh, salsa stage is going to really be jumping. And uh, Septito uh, Chapotin, they're on Sunday at 4.30 on the salsa uh, stage. And they are salsa pioneers from Cuba by way of L.A. And um, let's see, uh, the Hammer stage is going to really be jumping. Um, China Moses is going to be tomorrow at 3, and that's going to really be awesome. Um, Oh, Kim Nally with James Carter is 7 p.m., and that's uh that's tomorrow as well. Sons of Kemet, uh, six PM tomorrow on the Jazz Beyond. I just love that Sons of Kemet, isn't that cool? But then, you know, I don't know, Gregory Porter is tomorrow and I'm like, Okay, how are we gonna do all these things? Uh six PM on the Serato organization main stage, that's an outdoor stage. Um Richard Howe is playing a Love Supreme tomorrow at 3 p.m. on the Adobe Silicon Valley stage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, Yvonne Lenz, I think, is um, on the uh, Hammer stage. And I love Yvonne Lenz. He is so, so beautiful. Anissa Strings is um, is performing uh, Urban Renewal. Um, Charlie Hunter and Lucy Woodard. Um, Sylvia Quanka, Quanka, um, the drummer, like, yeah, she's been around like forever now. And I remember when I first met her, um, sort of jamming with, uh, Billy Higgins, you know, who is an ancestor. And I don't want you all to forget that, um, that, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom opened at the, um, ACT costume shop, shop on Wednesday, and that's a part of the multi-ethnic theater. And it goes through. This is a, <laughs> this is their their seventh August Wilson play, and it opened on the seventh of this month, and it's going to continue through early September. So you don't want to miss that. And oh, and then um, Quinn, uh, who I really love. He is on Sunday as well. Let me see if I put Quinn's information there. Let's see. Scrolling, scrolling. Oh, the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir is performing at 12 noon. And there's a jazz mass on Sunday at 1130 at Cathedral of St. Joseph. Um, Yeah, Yvonne Lynn, 7 p.m. tomorrow on the Hammer stage. Oh, Quinn DeVoe, um, he's going to be on Sunday at 1230 on the Blues Big Easy stage. He is really awesome. Uh, and again, the OJs tomorrow at six on Sobrato. I don't know, I don't know. Um, yeah, this the festival is going to really be super, super good. And then Pink Martini is performing, and then they're at they're at um, Stern Grove this Sunday, so you can catch them in San Jose, and then truck on down to uh, truck on over, I should say, to uh, Stern Grove for Sunday's performance. 
So we're going to close with this wonderful song by Shamar Allen, I Love You, and it's for Toni Morrison, We Love You, Honored Ancestor. And uh, so this song is our, our libation to you and to your work uh, and, yeah, and to your life. Can be. 